pick up this Lord's Day morning. Matthew chapter 10, verse 24. Let me read these uh, words in your hearing uh, again to set them in your mind uh, so that as we begin the exposition of them, the Spirit of God will have that already in your head so we can uh, understand them. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house... Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Therefore do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. And what you hear whispered in your ear, proclaim upon the housetops. Do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent, yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered, so do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. The subject, as you probably already know, is do not fear the world. Fear is a powerful emotional reaction to perceived our real danger confronting us. In fact, we have a God-given instinct called fight or flight response. The flight instinct is useful in preserving us from potential harm. The prospect of persecution is a source of believers' fear. However, in this passage, Jesus tells us three times, do not fear with respect to the world. Fearing the world, its lost people, can engender a reluctance to proclaim the gospel to them. Nevertheless, Jesus has given us the great commission which mandates our engagement with the unredeemed. Though we are as sheep amidst wolves, we are to enter the harvest field. We're not to hide our gospel light. We're not to allow our fear to keep us from obedience to our master. We must do what he says, regardless of any trepidations that we may have. That's what Jesus reiterates. Do not fear three times regarding the world. We're not to hide our light. A lamp is not to be brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed, Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand, Jesus says in Mark chapter 4, verse 21. We share the gospel, the light of God's truth. We do not conceal it. We do not hide it. We tell it. Potential persecution 
notwithstanding. <laughs> this is a part of the Bible that people don't like to talk about. <laughs> My first heading is this. We can expect persecution. We can expect persecution. Jesus says a disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. Let's uh, unpack this for a moment. Jesus' words here were originally given to his original disciples. But the text says here, you'll notice a disciple, an indefinite expression, thus applying to any follower of Christ down through redemptive history. A disciple, therefore, therefore, it applies to you. It applies to me. Anyone who has been born from above, anyone who is in the family of God, anyone who has truly come to faith in Christ is a disciple. So this word is for us. A disciple, by definition, is not above his teacher in wisdom and knowledge. Same is true of a slave and his master. He is not above him in the sense of economics and in societal standing. But a genuine disciple learns from his teacher. A slave who is genuinely a slave obeys his master. Here's a principle. Discipleship involves submission. Do understand that. Being a disciple of Christ means we submit ourselves to him in obedience. A disciple and a slave, the two figures used here, a disciple is to learn from his teacher to become like him. A faithful slave is to serve and become as his master, learning how to serve. The disciple is to become like his teacher, not only in wisdom and in character. There's something else that transpires here. When you become like him, you are to expect treatment like him. As we become more like Jesus Christ, we can expect opposition from the world we will receive the same treatment that he received. That's his point. Beelzebul. There, there's the word there in verse 25. Was originally a name for a pagan deity. You remember Beelzebub in first, or Second Kings chapter 1 verse 2. It became an epithet for Satan, the ruler of the demons. In fact, in this Gospel of Matthew, we saw where Jesus was called that the ruler of the demons. In verse 34 of Matthew chapter 9, but the Pharisees were saying, he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. It's a horrific thing. Describe Jesus' exorcism of demons to the power of the ruler of demons. It's not the only place. In the Gospel of Mark. This seems to be something they, they did routinely. They ascribed to Jesus as being in league with Satan. Mark chapter 3. 
verse 22, the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he cast out the demons by the ruler of the demons. What a horrific thing. The scribes blasphemously said Jesus was the tool of Satan. Now, here's our Lord's point. Back in our text, verse 25. If they call the head of the house Beelzebub, speaking of himself, how much more will they malign the members of the household? How much more will they malign the disciples? How much more will they malign you? If they will say this about the Son of God, say he's in league with Satan, what do you think they will say about you? Disciples should not expect to be treated better than Jesus. Expect to be opposed. Expect to be hated. Expect to be persecuted. That comes with being like Jesus. We're to be like Christ in our walk. That is our behavior. If anyone says he abides in him, he ought to walk as he walked. 1 John chapter 2, verse 6. We're to be like him as we learn and obey the scripture. Now here's an aspect of Christ's likeness that we don't think about often. And that is this, as we are more like him in the world, we can expect to be treated like he was when he was in the world. We can expect to be persecuted. That comes with the territory as you're a faithful disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't expect to be uniformly liked. Understand that people, they hated Jesus when he was here and they still hate him. And if you're associated with him and you would name his name, if you follow him, you live a godly life, do expect that they're going to hate you too. Jesus said that. That's what it means to be a follower of Christ. Uh, you don't hear this preached on TVN. You, you don't hear the prosperity gospel people talking like this. See, this is real Christianity, folks. This is what it really means to follow Christ. It means that as you engage the world with his truth and your life sticks out like a sore thumb, you are going to receive some backlash, some blowback. It's part of what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And in this world that we're living in right now, a world that is increasingly hateful toward God and his truth, do understand as you stand for Christ, as you stand for his standards, as you stand for holy truth, you are going to experience opposition. That, that, that's part of the way it is. When you, when you start talking about, no, 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 uh, your identity is the identity you were born with. You were born a male, you're a male. If you're a female, you're a female. When you start talking like that, you're going to get some blowback. <laughs> when you start talking, no, 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 it's not a social construct. It is the divine design that you're a man or you're, that you're a woman. You're going to get some blowback. 
when you start talking about Jesus Christ alone is the way, do understand there will be some backlash. Say he's the only way. Do understand people are not going to like that in a pluralistic society where they think every religion is of equal value. And you say, no, 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 that's not true. There's only one that is true, and that's the one that hit it by Jesus Christ because he was raised from the dead. He is the only way to heaven. You're going to get some blowback. So you can expect some persecution. Go and be faithful if you want to. We can expect persecution. Jesus, what's fascinating about this, he didn't tell us, cool your heels. He didn't say, stand down. He just said, this is what's going to happen. It's going to happen to you because it happened to me. We need some... (laughs) My title is Do Not Fear the World. Uh, We need to um, have some reasons why we shouldn't fear the world, right? Reasons for not fearing persecution from the world. That's my next heading. Jesus provides those for us. Because he knew we would be fearful. Verse 26. Therefore, do not fear them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. We do not have to fear the world because ultimately God's truth will triumph. Keep that in mind. Ultimately, God's truth will triumph. It's concealed now. They, they, they suppress the truth. They want to hide the truth. They, they don't want the truth anywhere to be made known. They, they want you Christians to shut up. They, they want to conceal it and they want to keep it hidden. But when the judgment comes, the wicked persecutors of Christ, Christ's people, will be revealed for the wicked people that they are. When Jesus comes at his second coming, and later on after the tribulation, when at the great white throne, when they stand before him, they will be shown to have been people who are exposed for having been wrong. On the other hand, faithful believers will be exonerated. We will be vindicated. We will be shown to have been right while the world was utterly wrong. That's what he's talking about here. Christians will be seen to have been on the right side of redemptive history. Having believed savingly in Christ and followed him, even persecuted, even martyred, but we will be shown to have been right. Unbelievers, on the other hand, will be shown to have made a monumental and eternal error. They will be shown to be, have been on the wrong side of redemptive history. They rejected Christ. Christ's truth will triumph. It will be victorious. 
You know that because if you're like me, you've read the end of the book. You've read the end of Revelation, the, the final book. You've read it and you know we win. Christians do not need to fear the world. God will make all things right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He, he's in charge of this thing. Understand that. His truth will triumph. So in not fearing the world, it involves speaking what Jesus tells us to speak. Verse 27. What I tell you in the darkness, speak in the light. We're to listen to Jesus. What he tells us in the darkness, what he is meaning there is speaking privately. He spoke privately to the disciples. He communicated truth to them. He spoke to them directly and, of course, in their presence. He speaks to us, too. And let me explain what I mean. He speaks to us through his word. He's not giving you personal messages. He is speaking in the scripture. We must listen to Jesus. Second thing we must do. We must only speak what we have heard from Jesus. Not what comes to our own minds, our imagination. We don't have the word for the world. Christ does. And we are to share his word with the world. Secondly, thirdly, we must speak his word even if it gains for us hatred or persecution. Don't be intimidated. Do not be inhibited by those who hate Christ and hate the Bible and hate Christians and all of that. Don't, don't worry about that. You just go ahead and speak what Christ has told you. You notice something says, uh, and what you hear whispered in your ear. During New Testament times, Jewish rabbis would often train their students to speak by standing beside them and whispering in their ears. What the student heard whispered, he would speak aloud. What is whispered through his word, we are to speak aloud to the world. And we're not to hold anything back. Tell it all. You know how it used to be in your pre-Christ days? When you were wanting to tell somebody something about someone, you're gossiping, you want to get a, every little morsel out? Y'all remember that? And you made sure they knew everything. You, you dotted every I and crossed every T. <laughs> now, you don't do that any longer. So what you do now, you don't hold anything back. You tell it all. Tell them what they need to hear. 
Don't be ashamed. Proclaim it upon the housetops. Don't go muttering around. Let me explain the housetop. You see, you went on the housetop and you could talk loudly. You could proclaim the truth. And on a housetop, you could be heard from a long, far distance. There's a place for talking loud. There's a place for using your outside voice. Share the word. Don't be intimidated by the powerful. Don't be intimidated by anybody. The fear of man is a snare, Proverbs says. Sometimes the fear of man will make us closed mouth because we're concerned about their opinion. We're concerned about how they will think about us. That shouldn't be our concern. Our concern is to proclaim what Jesus tells us. There's a man in church history, Hugh Latimer. He was one of the most outstanding figures of the English Reformation. He was preaching before King Henry VIII. And as he was preaching, he was about to say something he knew the king would dislike. So he held an audible dialogue with himself in the pulpit. An audible dialogue. He called out, Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king is here. Then he paused and went on. Latimer, Latimer, be careful what you say. The king of kings is here. Keep that in mind. No matter where you are, no matter with whom you're speaking or in front of, or whatever the case may be, just remember, no matter how high they are, there's somebody higher. Remember the King of Kings, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is there. He is observing. He's hearing. He's listening. that'll, That'll embolden you, and that's what we need. We need to be reminded of who's paying attention beyond those that we can see. They'll they'll give you boldness as you stand before people in the world. Now, such boldness belonged to John Knox. He's another figure of import in the Reformation. He was a Scottish reformer. I'm sure you've heard of John Knox. When they buried him, they said this about the reformer. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of any man. End of quote. If you're going to fear somebody, the second reason we're not to fear the world is that the soul matters more than the body. We see this in verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul. Two types of fears are contrasted in this verse. And both apply to believers. Jesus right away says again, do not fear. That's a command. 
those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul. Do you get that? He says, don't, don't, don't fear people who can take your life. I command, don't do that. Here's why. He forbids us to do that because their power over us is only temporary. They can kill the body. But they cannot kill the soul. Can't touch our soul. You think about it. When a believer dies, it is instant heaven for him or her. They are, therefore, immediately in the presence of their king, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to keep... um, these truths in mind because it will help us be unintimidated and fearless as Christ commands. I think everybody in the room remembers Stephen, first Christian martyr, Acts chapter 7. Stephen was... um, (laughs) Shall we say unintimidated? He was fearless. And he went right through Israel's history and he indicted his hearers. And it made them angry. Acts chapter 7. If I didn't tell you that, that's where it is. In verse 54. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and rushed at him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city... They began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. The man's been stoned. That's persecution, is it not? Verse 59, they went on stoning Stephen as he called on the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. You see, he understood all they could do was kill his body but he knew Jesus would take him right on into his presence instant heaven Stephen wasn't afraid because he knew once they killed him it just meant his instant presence with Jesus Christ That's all they could do to him. Paul was a, another. Paul was profoundly courageous because he had his understanding of what God plans for us right. Acts chapter 21, the apostle. And he 
And he suffered persecution, did he not? And we can see it in verse 10 of Acts chapter 21. Luke is with him recording these events. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his feet and hands and said, This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we, as well as the local residents, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I'm ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of our Lord Jesus. Wow. Ready to die. Paul had this profound motive. You see it in Acts chapter 20, verse 24, when he says, But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. He put the commitment to sharing the gospel above his own life. That's true Christianity, people. This is what it means to follow Christ. He to finish his course. Jesus is giving the ministry. That would be the case with us. If you know you're going to heaven, why are you afraid to die? Hello? That's a lot of some of God's people suffering. Paul, I didn't intend to say this. I'm on my way to another text and my finger stopped off at Romans 8. We love Romans 8, 28, don't we? Oh, man, that's our go-to voice verse excuse me oh we're we're headed there man whenever any little thing goes wrong romans 8 28 we can quote that up backwards and forwards romans 8 35 (laughs) who will separate us from the love of christ Will tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Wow. That's the kind of mindset disciples have I have a, a commitment to Christ I can't they can kill my body and persecute whatever they cannot separate me from the love of Christ they can't separate me in other words he's saying my salvation is secure that's what this passage is talking about all they can do is take your physical life that is the limit of their power 
And that's temporary. Book of Revelation. There's a, a truth similar. This is for the future. Revelation 11. The Lord's going to have two witnesses in Jerusalem. They're going to have 1,260 days to proclaim the word, three and a half years. And they're going to have some protection for a while. Revelation 11. They're symbolized as two olive trees and two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth, these two witnesses. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. Some of you say, okay, I'll sign up for that. If I can do that. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. These have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them, and here it is, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is mystically called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Everybody's going to rejoice. These prophets have terrorized us from their perspective for three and a half years, 1260 days, are dead. Let me uh, draw a couple things. We are invincible until God is finished with our life and ministry. That's why they were able to be or will be put to death by the beast or Antichrist. But notice something. But after, verse 11, but after three and a half days, the breath of life from God came into them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell upon those who were watching them and they heard a loud voice. Then they went to heaven and the cloud and their enemies watched them. Oh, man, I like to be there saying, hmm, what do you think about that? <laughs> Jesus said, don't fear them. All you can do is take your body. They can't kill your soul. Back in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus tells us what we need to do is fear God. Now, we're not fearing him as if he will take our, our soul because he's not going to do that because we're secure in Christ, right? The Bible is abundantly clear about the security of the believer. We cannot lose our salvation. We have eternal life. So this is not speaking of that kind of fear of God and that he would somehow cast us into hell. He's not going to do that to his elect. We're secure. We fear him in the sense of reverencing him, honoring him, standing in awe of him. Why? 
because he can destroy both soul and body in hell. Whereas Satan is limited and the world is limited. All they can do is take the physical body, the life. God's power is unlimited. He can destroy both in the body and the soul in hell. His power is unlimited. That word destroy needs some understanding here. It does not refer to annihilation or extinction. Rather, it connotes loss. It connotes ruin. People who go to Gehenna or hell or the final hell, the lake of fire, will experience loss. They will experience utter ruin. What are we talking about when we talk about loss, talking about ruin? This is it. Think about this. This is what hell is like. There's no grace there. There's no mercy there. No kindness of God there. No goodness of God there. No joy there. No peace there. No hope there. All of those things that people on earth get to experience to one degree or another, Christian and non-Christians, gone. Hell is a place where there's nothing but the unmitigated wrath of God against his enemies forever. A place of endless suffering. That's hell. In fact, in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, 9, when Jesus comes, his enemies will be consigned to eternal destruction, the verse says. Again, that word destruction in Greek means ongoing loss and ruin. It's eternal. There's no end to it. You know how it is when um, a storm comes and you experience loss, your roof others the house but you have insurance the loss is temporary hell the loss is eternal there is no insurance company to come and fix things people in hell are no better off 500 years hence than when they went there the very moment they died. God does that. He, he's able to destroy both body and soul in hell. We reverence him. His unlimited power. A third reason not to fear the world is because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. He rules. He does what he wants in his world, in his universe. He sits on his throne. He orders what happens here. Nothing can happen apart from his ordination. Nothing can happen apart from his decree. He rules. So we have to fear the world because he's over the world. He controls them too. Jesus resorts to the animal kingdom, as he does, 
to help us grasp this. Notice verse 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a cent? And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Let me just go through this a little bit. God has control over everything that happens in the universe. So to aid our comprehension of the pervasiveness and comprehensiveness of divine sovereignty, Jesus tells us about sparrows. Sparrows? Two for a cent, one-sixteenth of a denarius. A denarius was the day's wage for a laborer. A sparrow was the food of the poor. They had one sixteenth of a denarius and they purchased a couple of sparrows for dinner. Ben came home and Martha said, did you get paid? Yes, I did. Would you go and get a couple of sparrows for dinner? Insignificant, cheap food. you notice something when was the last time you paid attention to a sparrow (laughs) insignificant but they cannot fall to the ground apart from your father this insignificant creature cannot fall to the ground apart or without God's knowledge and without his consent Now let me tell you something. The timing of a sparrow's death is in God's hand. He controls the event. That's why Jesus is telling us this. So it is with us. God determines when we will die. The world does not have control over the moment you die. So you don't have to fear them. They're not in charge. David writes in Psalm 31, verse 15, these words, My times are in your hand. Deliver me from the hand of my enemies and from those who persecute me. He understood where his times are. In God's hand, he controls it. So you don't have to fear the world. They're not in charge. Jesus takes us even further. He moves from some cheap birds to the hairs on our heads. Notice what what he says here. But the very hairs of your head are, are all numbered. That's how far his sovereignty extends. It's his intimate knowledge of that. I want to ask you a question. What time in your life did you ever know the precise number of hairs that were on your head? You never knew that. You're right, sister. (laughs) Still don't. Some of you say, well, I don't have many. Well, you used to. (laughs) You don't even know how many of those few are. Jesus is telling us 
how he values us. Verse 31. So do not fear. You are more valuable than many sparrows. If God cares for the most insignificant bird, he will care for you. If he has intimate knowledge of them and what's happening with them, a bird, that they fall all over the place in this world. Some down in the, the, in the forest. They're dying. He knows. We don't. But if he pays attention to them, <laughs> the thing he's doing for you. That's why we have no business fearing the world. Because our God is sovereign. He has control of our life. So we just go and do what he says do. And we trust him. Knowing that the one we represent is the ruler of the entire world. There's no reason then for us to fear the world. Because our God is our father. He'll take care of us. What earthly father would not take care of his child? Normal ones. Responsible ones. They will fight for their child. Because they love them. Our father will do the same for us. But if he chooses to let us go ahead and die, understand in his wisdom that was the best thing for us. And the best thing for others. Our job is simply this. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the word, your word which tells us what we need to hear. You've given us a mission to the a world that's fraught with danger. People are evil and hate you. But you've commanded us to go. You've told us not, Lord, to fear. May we be fearless. May we just share the gospel. Tell needy people of their deep need and the one who alone can remedy that need and use us to that end for your glory we pray for any in this room who have not come to know Jesus Christ pray you open their blinded eyes free them from their bondage to sin and grant them the new birth they may love and serve you the holy worthy one we pray for ourselves that we will reverence you more and more we who know you stand in greater awe of you because of who you are as you've disclosed yourself to us these things we pray 
in the name of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ.